It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for... This podcast. Before we get into today's episode, just a few quick things. Firstly, in case you missed last week's episode, I am now on Patreon. If you'd like to support me and my podcasting endeavors, head on over to patreon.com forward slash and other Kiwi dreams. You can choose from four different tiers offering a range of perks from unedited episodes to behind the scenes extras and more. Patreon.com forward slash and other Kiwi dreams. I'll see you there. Secondly, I will be taking a break next week as I am moving house. But don't worry, we'll be back in two weeks with a very special guest. And with that, let's get into the 11th episode of Broadway and Other Kiwi Dreams, guest starring Fergus Inder. Hello. Welcome to Broadway and Other Kiwi Dreams, a weekly podcast exploring the lives and minds of theatre practitioners in and around the New Zealand performing arts industry. I'm your host, James Shearer. Today, I am joined by performer, producer, and whiskey enthusiast, Fergus Inder. Fergus and his family moved around a lot when he was young, finally settling in St. Louis at the age of 11. Since his return to New Zealand a decade and a half later, Fergus has become a staple within the Christchurch theatre scene. Fergus joins the podcast to share his travel experiences. We get a behind-the-scenes look into the role of a fundraising manager for a theatre company. And of course, we find out exactly why Fergus hates Michael Bublé. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, enjoy a conversation with Fergus on Broadway and other Kiwi dreams. Hey, Fergus, how's it going? It's going very well, James. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. No worries, bro. How's level one treating you? It's good. I've, I've mixed, mixed feelings about it, personally. It's amazing for me being here. I'm back to work in a lot of different ways. I'm back working at The Last Word, just doing kind of two days a week which is mm-hmm. nice. It's like a lovely place to work. I'm obviously doing a couple of things with Blackboard. We've got Waiting the Wings this weekend and um, just got our Creative New Zealand funding for a project that's happening later in the month as well. And then I'm um, putting together Buble You Bastard at the moment. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of work, but it's amazing being able to just kind of exist quite normally in a way that a lot of the world can't right now. So I'm super grateful for that. But feeling a little conflicted, I would say right now is tougher for me than any part of lockdown has been thus far. I wasn't particularly rattled by the state of the world when COVID struck, which maybe was a little like heartless of me, but I I don't know. Maybe I felt confident that it was going to be okay. My mum is a doctor. She works at the Brigham in Boston. So I feel like I had a pretty good perspective of how things were going, which was intense. But yeah, sure definitely kept me grounded so that time was was all right but now kind of in the wake of george floyd and a bunch of kind of awful decisions by trump and not to make this you know a political podcast but it's just really tough to be away right now you know my friends are protesting my little sister's protesting my mom's trying to still deal with the covid stuff amidst now trying to address kind of this big issue of structural racism from like a educational institution, medical point of view. And I feel really, really pulled, really pulled to be over there. You know, it's not homesickness, 
because I'd much yeah. rather be here. It almost feels like duty, you know, like when I was growing up, I really worshipped certain writers like Hemingway and, and like George Orwell. And in a like idealistic way, the things that they were passionate about politically were confronted by fascism during the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, They like went and basically volunteered and risked their lives for a country that like wasn't even their own. And there's part of me that feels like I might have this responsibility to do the same. And the country kind of is my own as well. Yeah. It's been a tough time just kind of grappling with with all that. And Nomi, who's my partner, was on the show earlier. Nomi Cohen for mm-hmm. listeners. And I had plans to relocate back to the States. And yeah, it just feels like sort of this path that I was planning to walk on has just kind of like crumbled beneath my feet. That path being moving back to the States and... And exploring that. Yeah. And it's not like it's gone. It just Mm. doesn't look like what it looked like before. And I'm just trying to reflect on what that looks like now. You know, if if there's anything that the last kind of six months has thrown into really harsh perspective, it's like as a someone who's like privileged enough to be like a dual citizen of these two places and have the option of living and participating in either one physically, which one do I want to live in, participate in? Which one reflects my values? Which one could I help the most, like do the most good in? Which one supports me in return the most? And I think I'm starting to increasingly believe that that is New Zealand. Sure. But that does make me feel like I'm abandoning some people, you know, or abandoning some ideals. Why do you think that's the case that it's now New Zealand? Lots of things. I think this country reflects my politics a lot more. Mm -hmm. I think it's smaller. So the ability to create change is just easier. Not to say that there's not a huge amount of structural racism here as well in terms of the way that we treat like the Maori population. Um, or Pacifica communities, non-white communities in general. But it feels like the difference between trying to make a system that's okay or pretty good into like a great system, as opposed to one that's like bad (laughs) into one that's okay. Yeah. Uh, So that's part of it. And also just like being an artist personally was financially really well supported during this whole crisis. Our, you know, Blackboard Theatre Collective the company that I've just joined has also just now been financially supported to do some work. So it just feels like maybe the arts has a higher cultural value here. And I think it's it's slightly less developed than it is in America, which is kind of entertainment mecca. Yeah. And I think for some people, that's not exciting because there are fewer opportunities. But I think for me, it's almost more exciting because there's more of an opportunity to grow, to create, to, to yeah. make it better yeah and to be a part of building that up to what it could be yeah man absolutely coming in like on the ground floor yeah so that's that that was a kind of an intense answer to what was just an initial question but yeah that's kind of where where i'm at right now that's great that's that's what we like with this podcast we ask silly questions to get to the deep stuff hell yeah and speaking of silly questions well maybe it's not silly maybe it's the toughest question that you'll ever have what is your favorite musical so i'm sure that every person you've asked on this i feel like i've listened to a couple of them and they're all like ah it's so hard (laughs) i actually did a not like a project but a presentation on this in university Our music theater history class was taught in a really interesting way by this professor named Matt Hawkins in Chicago, where basically we taught each other. So like he would assign presentations from the entire history of musical theater 
and you'd have to get up and like present your case. I presented, I think, two musicals. Or no, I presented one musical and then wrote my final paper on another. And those remain my, I think, top musicals yeah. in very different ways and in very different kind of categories. So I don't know if I'm allowed a, a tied gold, but... You're allowed whatever you want. <laughs> brilliant. The first one is important to me, like, for nostalgic reasons. I think it's really important to have musicals that engage young people and old people, just like families in general, and I just think it's a masterpiece, is The Lion King. Great. The Lion King is fucking unbelievable. Like, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I could talk about The Lion King forever. The Lion King's playing like everywhere in the world simultaneously. Why don't you, why don't you just start with the, the show? Obviously, the movie is a masterpiece. Yeah, and a cultural phenomenon. Like Absolutely. And I think it came out in like 94, so like the year I was born. I definitely remember it being one of the first things that I saw in terms of plot. Like it's based on Hamlet. So you're like, okay, mm -hmm. that's good. Musically, you've just got this like filthy team doing the music. You got Elton John. <laughs> to this day, it's the only Oscar nomination or Oscar win, sorry, for Hans Zimmer, who at the time was like real young. Mm. And he's the one that did all the like grasslands chant stuff. So like the bum 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 bum. That's all yeah. Hans Zimmer, dude. Like young Hans. And that's his only Oscar win. I'm pretty sure. You might have to fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure like he's been nominated for all of his kind of Christopher Nolan stuff. But I'm almost positive that he won for The Lion King and hasn't since. Hi, Fergus. Future James here. You are correct. Mr. Zimmer has been nominated for 11 Oscars, and his only Oscar win is The Lion King, 1994. Thanks. Back to the podcast. And then you've got these, like, amazing choral arrangements done by this South African guy, Lebo M, mm -hmm. that just, like, give you this crazy vocal sound. So that's, like, the bass material. And then, you know, when Disney was, like, after the success of Beauty and the Beast, they're like, we want to make a... Another one, we're thinking about The Lion King, pitch us your ideas. In comes Julie Taymor with like the most abstract way to present lions ever, which is this <laughs> kind of, I'm pretty sure it's like a Japanese mask technique that like where the masks mm. sit above the faces, but then at times they, they like drop, yeah. they drop down and, and it's just so effective and like casting an entirely kind of, not entirely, but like mostly black cast. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's like such a sick show. And I had one professor in college that was just like, undoubtedly the most effective 10 minutes of musical theater are the first 10 minutes of The Lion King. Mm -hmm. Like when you sit in that theater and hear the, ah, mm -hmm. and like, then you've got like these crazy puppets like coming through the audience. Through and the, the audience, yeah. Yeah, man. Like the gazelles up in the opera boxes and stuff you're just like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen and then the sun from the back of the stage yeah and they make they make pride rock it just like builds itself on stage out of the stage yeah it's the first real musical that i saw i saw it in sydney we took a trip from melbourne to sydney and i think i was like seven it blew cool. my mind blew my mind mm -hmm. and it's still playing and i would yeah. see it tomorrow there's no need to be really snobby about you know the best musical of all time i'm just like dude it's the lion king <laughs> my other answer is there's a real place in my heart for cabaret because it's dark yeah. and weird and addresses like some really cool stuff and it's sexy and so that would be kind of my like once i turn 18 answer you know <laughs> nice 
I read an article and the first paragraph was, well, the whole article was about your name. I think it was when you were at university. And the first paragraph was about how you were unintentionally named after a cow. Yeah. I was born very premature, which is ironic because my mum is a neonatal neurologist and some would say like the world expert on brain injury that is a result of like premature birth. But I was super premature. I was born here in Christchurch and my grandparents were really skeptical about coming to the hospital to visit me right after I was born because they were sure I was going to die. Right. And (laughs) eventually when my granddad shows up, he's like, what's his name? Mom's like Fergus, and he grew up up in Gisborne, and his parents were just that old school New Zealand cut, like did all sorts of jobs, like had a farm, but like made money doing whatever. And obviously they had a cow for milk. Yeah. And that cow, apparently when my granddad was very young, was called Fergus, which (laughs) strikes me as odd because wouldn't it be a female? Guess not. Yeah. Unintentionally named after a cow. Yeah, that's me. Did your parents know that? I don't think so. No. I don't think it would have changed their mind, though, to be honest. No. <laughs> I think they had a really tough time picking names. My dad, certainly at the time, was like very traditional Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure wanted like a real sturdy boy name. Like, I think his favorite name was Matthew. And my mum was like boring. And so they settled on Fergus. But then... They split up and my dad got remarried and had another kid. And so now I have a half-brother named Matthew. Great. So it all comes <laughs> around in the end, you know? It does. So you said you were born in Christchurch. Yes. But then you moved to Australia when you were six? Yes. So there was a brief little foray in there. So I was born in Christchurch and then from two to four, I lived in Boston where my mom was right. doing the medical stuff. And then we moved back to Christchurch. And then we moved to Melbourne when I was six. And then you moved back to the US when you were older. Yeah, and then 11. Yeah. Just before I turned 11, we moved to St. Louis. So was it tough moving around a lot? Was it tough? Uh, Yeah, totally. But also, I don't know, man. It's one of those things that's like, when you get on the other side of these like massive life-changing events, it's mm. really hard to reflect with any degree of accuracy on... What you actually felt at the time. Yeah, and and kind of how, like, objectively positive or negative they are. Like, if I didn't do all that moving around, I would be, like, a completely different person. You know, had I lived in Christchurch all my life, I don't know if I'd be living in Christchurch right now, doing what I'm doing. I think I was always pretty good at making friends. I think I was always kind of, like, a loud and crazy kid, and I liked school and did lots of activities. And so I think that part was never hard. Moving to the States, you know, I was like 11, kind of chubby and like aggressively Australian. Had gone to like this like all boys school. Yeah. Was like loud and swore and was like kind of violent, but like real goofy and went into like a co-ed public school with no uniforms. Middle of winter in St. Louis, I'm wearing like Quicksilver board shorts and, (laughs) you know, into school. And I I think people thought that I was fascinating, you know, for like these, you know, 11 year old American kids. They're like, I've never met anything like this. And I kind of capitalized on that. But yeah, there were there were absolutely like huge consequences, you know, like when we moved from Australia to the States at that age, my mom and dad had already split up. My dad stayed behind. Mm. And so kind of from that age, you know, 10 to basically until I moved like back here, I didn't really see my dad very often. And And that's that's a tough age for that to happen. Oh, totally. You know, I 
And we moved away, like all my extended families is here in New Zealand. So really didn't have many like super present male role models. I've got two sisters and then like my mom. Yeah. So yeah, consequences. Yeah. Hard at times. I'm grateful for my international identity, for my education, for the friends I have all over the world. For your melting pot accent. Yeah. For my weird fucking mongrel voice. <laughs> Did you stay in touch with your dad and are you, are you still close with him? Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, not say that he like wasn't present or like was like a bad father or whatever. It's just kind of the limitations of geography. What went from like seeing him every week for a couple of days or whatever went to, you know, like a phone call every week. And maybe yeah. we'd go to Australia once a year. Maybe he'd come over for a conference once a year. But, you know, even for like a pretty well off family of like doctors and stuff, sending three kids to Australia for a couple of months annually is yeah. expensive man so yeah he, he like definitely did his best but there's only so much you can do i think yeah there are definitely times when it was hard i remember a point when i was in university when i like got really really upset because at that point i was like a couple years into studying theater and my dad had still never seen me on stage wow yeah i just remember being like it, it's really important that you come over and watch something he has seen Lots of stuff yeah, sense. yeah. And yeah. Um, he did my third year of school. He came over and then last year of school, he came over and, and watched another show. And that was great. That was really important to me. I just felt like there was this <laughs> huge disconnect where like my whole life, you know, was just class and rehearsal and blah, blah, blah. And, and it was like, I felt like he had actually no grasp on whether I was even any good or not. That was like a massive hurdle in, in relating to this parent figure. Mm. But since I moved back here, he lives in Brisbane now. We've gotten way closer which has been awesome. Cool. Yeah. Um, he pops over all the time. He's got lots of friends in Christchurch. I literally drive his truck around. It's been a really great thing for that relationship. Just being close. Again, it's just kind of that the, the limiting factor was not any person. It was just geography, man. Speaking of the theater thing, did you perform growing up? Mm, like kind of, I was, I was quite a musical child. There's like instruments, right? So I played piano yeah. from probably like five to 10. At that point, I kind of segue. I played the cello for a while. So I played cello from like 10 to 14, but it all kind of started with singing. So like when I was really little, I think I was like six, I was like shoulder tapped in my school and then auditioned and got into the Australian boys choir. So I did that from like six to again, like nine, 10, which was a lot of trips and singing and going around and camps and rehearsals and that was i would say my most intense introduction into music and a lot of the like terminology that i still know and rely upon is probably mm. from what i learned when i was like seven you know <laughs> right but yeah i think that's still to me like a, a real i've always loved to sing mm. i feel like that's always been a pretty big part of my identity and then when we moved to Australia, I sang a lot and like middle school, which is what we'd call it, which I still don't understand the New Zealand school years, but this is from age 11 to 14. It was weirdly in my school, like quite cool to do the like musicals and stuff. It was like a way to just hang out. And so I did like Beauty and the Beast and 42nd Street. I was always kind of in the ensemble, was short and could sing, but definitely not like leading man material in any way. Yeah. I still had this yeah. like thick Australian accent that I could not get rid of. <laughs> and then in high school, I was playing football and like American football and tennis mm -hmm. throughout the whole time. And then I got to high school and played football again and we were terrible and I was terrible. And I did the musical, which was Peter Pan and got a big role 
and then was going to play tennis. But then they were like, why don't you audition for the student directed musical, which was you're in town mm-hmm. at my high school. And I got the lead in that as like a freshman, you know, as like a first year in high school. Yeah. And from then on, it was kind of theater. I went to play football again that next year, which was my second year of high school. I like broke my arm horrifically. <laughs> and that was it. And that was it, man. Yeah, I just kind of <laughs> never looked back. Did theater all through high school and was really lucky to have some amazing mentors. You know, I had a great singing teacher throughout high school. There's a guy who taught musical theater at like the local university who took me on as like a, I guess like a mentee, just like he would teach a lot of kids in the area tap. And I was like shocking at tap. And originally it was like, ah, teach me how to dance. But it eventually turned into like, we would do like song study and like meditate and talk about theater and just kind of like do some moving around stuff. I think he just kind of became someone that looked out for me and like opened some doors for me. So he kind of suggested that I go to the university that I ended up going to and used to teach there and I think put in a put in a decent word. And also I ended up working two summers at like this big outdoor theater in St. Louis called the Muni, Mm -hmm. which does like seven musicals a summer. And they have these crazy intense like 10 day rehearsal processes, but bring in this like crazy Broadway talent and being like a 17 year old and meeting Tony winners and stuff and fetching their tea and being in like three numbers or performing for kids that just graduated from, you know, the best college programs in America was really inspiring to me, lit a fire a little bit. And I carried that on through my like university training. Hmm. Speaking of high school, I saw that you did a trip to Honduras. Oh yeah. Where'd you see that? I don't know. (laughs) I I, I think like usually what I do is I just go on Facebook and see what high school people went to. And then I right. searched their name in that high school and, yeah. you know, stuff comes up or it doesn't. And that's what came up. <laughs> just this podcast sleuthing, bro. It's fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I did go to Honduras. Mom was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And all through high school, I studied Spanish. And I still have like a huge love for the Spanish language. Been watching some sick Spanish TV recently. If anyone needs some Netflix recommendations, it's called La Casa de Papel, but on English Netflix, it's called Money Heist. Mm -hmm. Sweet show. Elite. Elite. Which is uh, kind of like if Big Little Lies and Gossip Girl fucked and had a Spanish baby. Great. Also a good time. Anyway. (laughs) Get your Spanish on. (laughs) Yeah, do it. The trip to Honduras came about just because this team of doctors that was being formed by one of my mom's colleagues just needed people to help kind of facilitate like volunteers basically to help translate just kind of go assist on this trip and one of my friends from high school was going who was from mexico and a native speaker i just thought it would be cool and a good way to help i think it was like a catholic mission trip but by that point, I wasn't very religious or anything. It just felt like a nice yeah. way to help. And so we flew into Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of Honduras, which notoriously is one of the smallest runways in the world. Planes fall off the edge of it all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, which is low-key terrifying. And then we hopped on a bus and drove to this wee town called Uticalpa, where they kind of set up in this hospital and clearly had like put the word out for locals to come in and just receive like free medical attention but it was a specifically geared towards the roads in that area are unpaved pretty much all of them 
but there are still a lot of like cars driving around. So there's a huge amount of dust and dirt in the air. Yeah. And the rates of asthma and other kind of pulmonary diseases are really, really high. So it probably looked honestly not dissimilar to what some COVID wards look like right now, where there were just a bunch of people on like ventilators. But yeah, just kind of helping give people very basic asthma treatment, which you kind of yeah. take for granted, puffers and inhalers and stuff that helped people get through. It was a cool trip. It was very eye opening. I didn't really see <laughs> a lot outside of the hospital, unfortunately. I hear the Honduras yeah. is beautiful. Apparently has some of the best like scuba diving in the world. I don't do that, but I'd, I'd love to actually travel through Central America. I, that's not something I've done yet. Yeah, it just seems like a whole different world to what we live in absolutely one of the few times that you just feel like a complete outsider minority yeah i think those experiences are super important definitely especially in those teenage years where it could go to the egotistical way but if you do that kind of stuff it broadens your mind i think it does ground you man i mean just getting some perspective and being like oh not everyone has shoes you know not to make some like horrific statement about like poverty or whatever but just like the things that you assume as a kid that everyone must have because you do are countless <laughs> mm-hmm, totally let's bring it back to theater please <laughs> what is your dream role to play that you haven't played already i would say it's probably one day when the day comes i'd love to play george in sunday the park with george yeah i don't i do love that show I think it doesn't have much place in commercial theater, you know, like it's sure. it's a show about art for artists. It's yeah. kind of a it's like the most beautiful circle jerk of all time. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I don't want to play the role. Yeah, totally. Is there anything specific about that role? I just love the score. I love yeah. the songs. I think finishing the hat is amazing. I think all the mm-hmm. like little bits with with Dot like move on and we don't belong together and playing kind of two characters separated by history is interesting to me yeah i just think it would be really challenging i think it would be liberating as well to like so beautifully articulate a lot of the struggles that every artist goes through in terms of like love and connection and feeling isolated and feeling like a failure yeah totally so we touched on the high school thing and just before we move on from that you directed some things in high school didn't you i did i directed one thing in high school so i mentioned it a bit earlier when we were talking about you're in town. Um, yeah. Basically, the way that my like high school theater year was structured was in the fall. American school years go from I don't know September to June. So we'd do a play in like November, and then there'd be a musical in like February, and oh. then there'd be the student-run musical, which was entirely like directed, music directed, choreographed um, by students, and that would mm. be in like May. Basically, the theater teacher, so my theater teacher, her name was Kelly Ryan at the time. It's now Kelly Weber. But she was an amazing teacher, really believed in like developing talent and inspiring youth about theater. And basically, at the end of your third year, your junior year of high school, if you had done a lot of shows and were interested in directing the show the next year, you would apply and she would select you and then you would build your team and you would kind of enter a conversation about what show you wanted to do. I directed... The Rocky Horror Show, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool to do in a high school environment. You know, I kind of had to like have chats with the principal about it because we wanted to do it. But we also wanted to do like midnight shows in the school for the theater. 
I mean, for yeah. like the students as well. Yeah. So it was just kind of getting permission for all that stuff. And, you know, we wanted all the props and the yelling and the... The Rocky Horror experience. Yeah, just create the Rocky Horror experience yeah. uh, in context of the live show. Yeah, I mean, to this day, like, just one of my favorite art experiences ever. It was just like me and all my high school friends. I played football and had a lot of friends outside of theater. And so we had like some really diverse, like, group of people coming together to do this show. One of my best friends played Frankenfurter, which was like a really formative experience for him and his identity at that time. Yeah. Like putting on heels and yeah. going out there and like full makeup in front of his boys. Yeah. And that must have been pretty special to direct him in that. Totally. And yeah. it was super brave. And like the response was amazing. We got protested like around that time the school did by the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> I don't know if you know a lot about it, but like he's basically this he's the guy that goes to funerals and stuff with those picket signs that say God hates fags and like just a ter like, terrible guy like cult leader with yeah. just atrocious views he's in like the laramie project and stuff for protesting yeah. matthew shepherd's yeah. funeral so he protested our school around that time while we were doing rocky and we yeah. i don't know we just it's like felt like we were like doing something that was like fun and funny and important and seemed to highlight what sort of community we were. And also, I guess, like, you're talking about high school age. That shows, like, from the 70s, there were a lot of people that, like, didn't really know about it at that point that were maybe being introduced to it. And I think that's a cool thing as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Is directing something that you would like to get into more? I don't know. So that was my first directing experience. Yeah. And then I, you know, and I, it went really well. We sold out and everyone was like, wow, this was like such a great time. Then I went to college and I had this idea, yeah, that I was like actor, director <laughs> mm -hmm. and just a huge ego about it, I think. And I directed a show my second year of school called Marat Saad, which you might not know most people don't <laughs> it's this really abstract play it was like translated from the german that was made famous at the royal shakespeare company again in like the 70s and it's like very brechtian and it was done by peter brooks who wrote oh what's it called the empty space i think basically it's this very strange play where it's like a play within a play but it takes place in a french mental asylum where the patients are doing a like weird musical version of the story of Jean-Paul Marat from the French Revolution, who's the guy that you've probably seen the famous painting of that guy who's killed in his bathtub. And mm. he like is hanging over the bathtub with it. So that's Jean-Paul Marat. He was like a journalist during the French Revolution that was like a real voice of the people kind of guy and was killed for it. So it's just a buzzy play, like a really buzzy, like a really weird choice for me to come out the gate with that. I basically took the biggest bite out of a steak that you could possibly bite Mm -hmm. and could not chew that bitch. <laughs> there were some great performances. I feel like everyone was really behind it in the room, but we put it up and, you know, people were just like, what is this? Mm -hmm. uh, people try to be very kind in school, but, like, it was a... <laughs> <laughs> it's a real lesson for me and like where my strengths lie and what I still need to learn. And directing is not just a thing you can do if you have a good theater brain, like it's work. You have to like, yeah. it's a skill. You got to learn how to do it. Yeah. I think probably in that moment, I realized it's probably not going to be the thing that I want to invest in, in terms of skill mm. development. You know, yeah. I'd rather be a performer and try to 
produce work and yeah across like acting singing piano producing marketing like those sorts of things i have too many things already (laughs) on the um university so you you studied theater and political science so i did initially yeah i went into university being like i'm doing theater and and political science because in high school theater was the thing i did extracurricularly but it wasn't what i was going to do in life i had this dream and like going to honduras was was part of it that i wanted to be a diplomat Mm -hmm. that i was going to kind of learn a bunch of languages and end up working you know in the state department or the united nations or that sort of work and it kind of gradually became oh i want to go to school where i can do theater and that and then like a year into trying was just like i like theater way more than yeah yeah like all these political science classes and like in terms of the amount of energy that i'm putting into like working on these things it's just not even close i basically just you know was like i'm just gonna kind of take a gamble on myself and try to follow the dream a little bit so you stopped that after the first year yeah and i still did you know i took a class every now and then that i was like oh that's interesting i'd like to learn that that was a luxury of going to northwestern was that you know i was studying theater but there was room in my coursework to take classes and a bunch of stuff you know at my liberty so yeah i took some cool history classes took some cool politics classes i took french for like almost two years there were things that we had to do to round out our liberal arts education and then there were things that i got to take like just fun alongside you know a shit ton of theater (laughs) yeah yeah i was gonna say how's the theater side of it how was that experience amazing i loved northwestern man that's such a good program it's not for everyone you know like if you want to go to a school where they're going to pop you out like the best ensemble broadway caliber you know like was my dance training at university great no northwestern's program is designed in that it's kind of like this half conservatory style like acting singing acting through song you know musicality dance that sort of training and then half like playwriting directing adaptation history politics of theater like that sort of stuff northwest is one of the most like represented schools on broadway it's not in the way that a lot of those other programs are where it's like 75 percent of our graduates are in the ensembles of like these massive musicals it's like yeah. the people that went to northwestern that are on broadway are like a couple of people that are front and center stage you know amazing actors or musical theater performers who are playing kind of lead or supporting roles, or you've got like stage managers. There's a huge group of people that are music directors or orchestrators, playwrights, people that exist like on the production team, you know, like I have friends that are my age that are producing teams for shows that are going up on Broadway right now. There's a thing that happens at Northwestern kind of halfway through where a lot of people are like, hmm, I always thought I was going to be a performer. I'm here, I'm smart that's not really working out for me how can i exist adjacent to that still in this business in a way that's going to be really inspiring to me still and where i can work where i can yeah. do amazing work and it's great that northwestern can facilitate that yeah and they do an amazing job man i love my professors that's a version of the dream like probably not mm-hmm. now that i'm like oh i want to live in new zealand but like man some of my professors just have like the most at least from the outside, the most amazing lives. Yeah. Being able to teach at that school and influence up-and-coming artists and also have, like, amazing careers on their own. You know, like, my acting teacher, Sandra Marquez, is an ensemble member that directs and performs regularly at uh, Steppenwolf, which is, like, cool. one of the biggest regional theaters in the country. They're the theater company behind um, August Osage County that went to Broadway. 
that's a sick life, I think. And they were all, so many people there, just so inspiring to me. Mm. So before we move on to like your career, what would be a dream miscast role that would be really cool to play? People in Blackboard that might listen to this will will laugh because I harp on about this all the time. Since He Says, She Says has started, This mm-hmm. is, I've wanted to do one thing the whole time and I'm pushing to get it in this year's show, but they're still sort of like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I would want to play Belle in Beauty and the Beast. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I guess I went on my big Lion King rant before. I love yeah. I love Disney. I love Disney theatricals. I know Beauty and the Beast is kind of weird and Stockholm syndrome-y, but like I just had a huge crush on Belle. I think Belle's track is really fun. I guess maybe I just like that she like reads books, you know? <laughs> and like the, I think that opening number, like the bonjour sequence is like so fun. And you get to be in the center of big numbers that you're not even a part of, like be our guest and stuff. So like, yeah. I think it would be that. Mm. Do the freaking waltz during Beauty and the Beast, you know? Totally. Yeah, put me in. Give me in that blue <laughs> dress, boy. <laughs> and the yellow one, too. Famous yellow one. Oh. All the dresses. All the colours. All the dresses. <laughs> Moving on to your career, when did you move back to New Zealand? Was that, like, straight after uni, or...? It's been kind of a roundabout journey. I don't know if I could tell you when I... I guess it was probably Chicago that I officially moved to New Zealand. But I feel like up until like maybe the last year, I've been pretty foot out the door. You know, I I think if you asked me, I was yeah. just in New Zealand, but not like forever. I, I don't know. Yeah, was, sure. Yeah. So like I, I came here for the first time when I graduated. I was very much the kind of person that, you know, I'd been in school for 16 years and worked my ass off and was just toast you know it was just burnt out as hell like the idea of moving to new york and hitting the audition grind or even staying in chicago and doing the same i was just like i need time so i planned this big trip basically around the world and my roommate in college came with me matt kastenbaum for a little while and we like farmed in hawaii and went to hong kong and booped through australia and went to bali like did some cool stuff And then he went back to start work in New York and I was going to come here. Well, I did Mm -hmm. come here and my grandparents live here and I was just going to live with them. And my granddad and I have always been pretty close. And basically he's kind of a real like do it yourself guy. He's a property manager, but he's also kind of like of that generation where he's like also the handyman, you know, will like just come around and fix shit or do things like that. So he kind of put me to work and I was like painting fences and mowing lawns and learning about just like basic life skills like that, that I'd never had to like really learn being so academic and that was yeah. really nice. And the plan was just to kind of save up some money and enjoy being in New Zealand and kind of see family and hang out, do that for six months and then go on this big like South America trip starting in Argentina and kind of ending in the States. That kind of got interrupted by I auditioned for Priscilla, Queen of the Desert with Showbiz Christchurch because... I missed theater and was bored and didn't know anything about the scene. No, obviously didn't know any about showbiz, didn't know. I'd seen the show in London and loved it. And I was like, when else am I going to maybe be considered for the show? They'll never put it up in like a regional theater in Chicago. Yeah. And so auditioned for that and, you know, went in for my audition and met Stephen Robertson and Richard Merritt. And they were sort of like, who are you? Like, where did you, <laughs> where did you come from? got cast and the ensemble and 
did that show and that was really really fun just kind of delayed that trip a bit was planning on just going back to the states but i kind of want to do more traveling steven after priscilla was like do you want to come back at the end of this year and do chicago at the court theater Mm -hmm. yes so (laughs) then i went to argentina for a month and then i was back in the states kind of seeing friends and family for a month and then i had applied for this crazy program. It's like a farm internship at this foundation in Italy called Spinocchia, which is this big agricultural estate and kind of agro-tourism hotel on the outskirts of Siena in Tuscany, where basically they bring in kind of eight international young people and you work on a farm and you work in like the restaurant that's attached to this hotel that is in this like old Tuscan castle. Yeah. And you learn Italian and you learn about the culture and history of Italy. You learn about Italian cuisine. You learn about like sustainability and agriculture because it's all like a organic farm. So that was awesome. I was basically just like hanging out in Italy for three months and yeah. And then I came here to do Chicago and Chicago turned into Wicked and then in the next room. And at the time I had started dating Nomi. It just kind of became that I there seemed no reason to leave if I was like falling in love and working. And the reality was that I was working a hell of a lot more doing more exciting projects than a lot of my friends in the States, you know, where the competition is like really, really fierce. And so it felt like a really cool opportunity for me to like build my resume and get some professional experience and get paid and live in New Zealand, live in Christchurch, which I was really enjoying. Cool. So then moving to the start of this year, you get cast as Roger in Rent, which unfortunately has been cancelled. Yes. Is that a role that you've wanted to play? No. Not no, not really. I I saw Rent when I was in high school and loved it. Like I've, I've always had a lot of time for Rent, but I don't know. I, I I guess I just I didn't see myself really as as a Roger. I don't think I really would have seen myself as any of the roles in Rent. I think maybe that's part of my theater training that is American, where the competition is is so intense that you get good. Some would say too good typing yourself sure and you have a niche yeah and it's like it's not just you know what you look like or how tall you are or what color your hair is or whatever but how you sound and where you feel comfortable in kind of an acting realm and i think it's probably just coming Mm. to terms with the fact that my type is different now that i'm getting a bit older different here in the context of like being in new zealand and um maybe i just never really given singing those songs a go because i remember just being like all right i should like have a sing through one song glory see like how it sounds in my voice and at the end of it i was like oh (laughs) that was actually better than i thought would you have had to learn guitar or did you know guitar before i did not know guitar before i I like to think I'm like fairly musical. I play a decent amount of piano. Richard, obviously, Richard Merritt, who was music directing the show, was pretty confident that I could learn the guitar that needed to be learned, which, uh, to be perfectly honest, isn't a shit ton of guitar. He does a lot of like carrying his guitar around. Yeah. But like, all you have to do is like tune the open strings at the beginning of the show and then play that like Musetta's waltz a bunch. They're like, that thing and then that last song your eyes just learn the kind of finger picking for that so i was given some money by the court to learn guitar and tim herringer was 
my guitar teacher for you know the awesome. time between when I was cast up until it was cancelled. I learned uh, not a lot of guitar, but uh, it would have been enough guitar to to play the role in the last couple of months. But again, it's it's uh, knowing a lot about very little. I all I needed was enough to do the thing, and also yeah. enough so that when I like picked up a guitar, people in the audience weren't like that guy doesn't fucking play guitar <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, look, to look comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Because guitar is one of those instruments, bro, where like everyone plays a little bit of guitar. Yeah, yeah. And when I got cast, I was like, yeah, man, except for me, I don't play any guitar. <laughs> so that was a journey. It was really fun. I love learning new new things to, to play roles. I was excited yeah. by that. And I think it was good for me to have a really drawn out motivation that kept the show alive for me because I was pretty much like, if I don't spend the next, you know, six months practicing practicing guitar, I'm going to look like a dickhead. And because I was practicing guitar for rent, you know, pretty much every day, you know, you're just thinking about a lot and thinking about the music and listening to it. And I was excited for that much preparation and definitely disappointed when the show couldn't happen. But I think not not like crushed, you know, if all I lost is my ability to play Roger in Rent, I am doing so much better than so many people. So almost surprisingly, super okay with it. Sure. So speaking of roles, do you have a favorite role that you've played? This one's probably the hardest one. If we're sticking to musicals, I'd say there's like two things. I'd say like there's a role that I played that I was like, whoa, that was challenging. I wouldn't say like the process was overly positive but i'm outrageously proud of the product and i like didn't know that i was capable of that and that would probably be when i played the mc in cabaret mm-hmm. where was that that was at university and then there's kind of this caliber of roles that feel so good because you're like i'm perfect for this role do you know what i mean where like you just go yeah. out and you're like I can just kind of like do my thing and know it's right. Know that it's like supporting everyone, not be like, oh, fuck, like, am I good? I, I've been fortunate there have been a couple like that. I'd say the first time I like really, really felt like that was probably uh, when I played Cinderella's Prince and the wolf in Into the Woods. Mm-hmm. But more recently, it was probably like Fiero, you know, yeah. like going out there and playing Fiero. I was like, this is pretty comfy for me i don't have to do a lot i love wicked it was just so cool to be a part of that and just kind of help these ladies just smash it yeah and that's kind of, that's kind of got that disney feeling as well yeah totally you know you're you're that guy yeah and i i enjoy playing that guy i guess totally and you're great in it thank you bro that was the um answer i was looking for i guess <laughs> <laughs> whenever i ask, ask that question there's like a role that i'm like this is probably going to be the answer <laughs> Yeah. Like Jane with Alphaba or Becca with Glenda. Yeah. It always seems to well, be there wicked. You go. <laughs> three for three, wicked. Yeah. So moving on to now, we, we, we mentioned that you are now working with Blackboard yeah. as the fundraising manager. That's it. What does that entail? Uh, what is it? I mean, it basically means that I, we might try to reword it, but it is, it's kind of all about like development. Theatre companies need money, money to operate. So I was in charge of our recent application to Creative New Zealand for the arts continuity grant that we got, led that process, which was successful. I'm like, yeah, coming in, I'm I'm one and oh. <laughs> um, one for one. But on top of that, it's, it's, you know, trying to forge more partnerships, just grow the business, get us some funding. I've been doing some like PR stuff as well, trying to find us like corporate sponsors, that sort of thing. And then participating in, like, obviously the big group discussions about programming and things like that. So, yeah, the the titles are very, very loose, like umbrellas that don't quite 
cover everything that we do as the yeah. Yeah. young team of, of only so many people. But I think it's important. One of the things that I try to emphasize when I joined the team was that specialization was key to just operating more efficiently. Sure. And specialization as in like the different people have specific things that they do. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've got to seed control of everything, gain control over a little bit, trust that like, you know, people are going to do their jobs and we'll be yeah. able to collectively do so much more. Yeah. And I think that's been working really well so far. It seems like it has. Yeah. Just on that note we touched at the start about waiting in the wings. Yes, waiting the wings. Waiting the wings is uh, this weekend, Saturday. Yeah. And when this is released, it will have been last weekend. <laughs> will have been last weekend. Great. Well, so, I, I can confidently say that it was the greatest show of all time. Oh, me too. I <laughs> definitely flew back to Christchurch to see it and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it'll be good. I, I think the um, guiding philosophy behind it is is really good and really important. Just like, let's just give these people an opportunity to work, an opportunity to make some money through profit share, an opportunity to perform some of the stuff they're really excited to perform, but maybe we'll never get to or yeah. won't get to for a long time. Yeah. And to give our audiences the same opportunity to see that work and to support these artists that hopefully they care about. What's it been like to pull that together? It's been good. I mean, to be honest, man, I, Ben and Kira are kind of really running the show on this one. I've been kind of stepping in at times to do things like I kind of arranged and chatted to the Madison Northcott at the press for that article that was pumped out this week. But for the most part, Kira and Ben are sort of like, for the sake of this show, Fergus, because you're in a couple of numbers in it, just focus on being a performer. Sure. And we can kind of take care of everything, which is yeah. very generous of them. By all accounts, it's been very smooth. It was interesting when we moved to level one and kind of went from selling two shows with a capacity of 100 to two shows with the capacity of 350 yeah. or whatever. Just meant more work to do because, yeah. you know... Had we had the capacity that we had when the show was announced, we'd be sold out. So it's exciting, but also like, whoa, <laughs> more tickets. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be so good to get theater back into our systems, I guess. Yeah. And it's it's been amazing going to things already so far. I've been to a yeah. couple of things at Little Andromeda and it's just like, man, it feels awesome to like be in a room watching some, some dope art live. Totally. Can't beat it. And then you've got your own show coming out, which we also mentioned once in the beginning i do indeed buble you bastard buble you bastard third of july which at the time this comes out will be a week away in one week i will be taking down canadian crooner michael buble son of a bitch get him yeah <laughs> yeah third july at the piano it's gonna be a time it's been a, it's been a show a, a while in the making now but yeah so you're doing that with andy who's also past guest of the podcast yeah and he's doing an amazing job we've got this sick band of four but andy's like rearranging kind of all these big big band tracks into these kind of really cool arrangements for for four and there's lots of like underscoring and the whole thing will be musical and i'm really passionate about the music being as if not more important than like any degree of storytelling or or humor about buble yeah because like the music's at the heart of of the whole thing but yeah i'm i'm excited i think it's a real funny concept like there are only a handful of artists that you could make a show and basically 
the idea of the show or like the storytelling or the narrative arc of the show is fuck this person. Yeah. And people are like, oh, great. But also the content of the show is just entirely that person's music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was trying to think of like what other artists I would go to a show like that. And I'm just like, I don't know, maybe like Nickelback. Like yeah. everyone loves to roast Nickelback. But if there was like a young grunge band that was doing like a Nickelback tribute, but like shitting on Nickelback throughout, yeah. but like jamming to like Photograph and yeah. Rockstar and like all these kind of old tunes, I would definitely go to that. Or like some like oh, yeah. Chainsmokers concert where they're like playing like all these like poppy dance hits, but like interluded with fuck the Chainsmokers. <laughs> I would be like, this is amazing. Yes. So that's kind of what I want to <laughs> do with Buble. And I hope yeah. that uh, I don't end up with just like a lot of people who are misinterpreting the marketing who are like, yeah. oh, I love Buble and then get there and are offended by what I say. But I think for yeah. the most part, people get that it's in jest and are down for the ride, you know? Yeah, totally. So I guess people will find out in the show, but can you give us a little taste of why you hate Michael Buble? Definitely. Basically... When I was a kid, I loved and idolized Michael Bublé. I wanted to be him. I've yeah. like always had a love for like that old school jazz music. And if I could describe it in a couple of sentences or so, basically listening to too much of that music, too much of Bublé led me to have some like really whack ideas about love and finding true love and love at yeah. first sight and the way that people treat you and the way that you're allowed to treat people that like led me to get hurt or to hurt people. And rather than take any degree of personal responsibility for the absorption of those lessons or the mistakes that I made, I'm writing a show calling out Michael Buble. <laughs> yeah. It's such a great concept. I love it. <laughs> I hope, I hope people come out. I think it'll be a really fun, really fun night. And I'm definitely nervous about it. I've never done any sort of show like this. Like, obviously, this was kind of part of your, like, NASDA education, right? Like, nobody's kind of talked about that. But, like, all NASDA students seem to do... The cabaret style. Yeah, cabaret. Yeah. It's just... I just never learned that. So it's totally new to me. And I guess that's part of, like, that's the New Zealand scene. It should be taught mm. in a New Zealand theatre education context. Yeah, totally. So I guess I'm just joining... I'm catching up. I'm joining in. Yeah. Late to the game. Join us. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess future James will jump in and uh, if there's any more tickets and say get your tickets for next week, 3rd of July. Thanks for the setup, past James. Hey guys, future James here again. There are indeed tickets left to Buble You Bastard. So if you want to get your tickets, you can go to eventfinder.co.nz and just search Buble You Bastard, or there'll be a link in the description of this episode where you can go and it will take you straight to it. Get your tics. Do it. Now. We should probably wrap this up, but before we do, the final question I want to ask you is, what is your kiwi dream based around the title of this podcast yeah i think this concept's so good it's so wholesome truly Thanks, and man. it's like such a great blend i think the cool thing about the kiwi dreams is that for the most part they seem to be this like amazing mixture of i don't know like ambition and practicality or like yeah just kind of like like modesty but also inspiration yeah and i think that's really unique to this culture and i i love that i would say my goal 
my dream as it pertains to New Zealand and I say specifically New Zealand theatre. I think that we have such a unique culture, this weird kind of British colonial, but like also like amazing Maori informed, like hopefully future bilingual culture that is uh, very laid back and very chill and very funny, but in like a very dry, often like dark (laughs) or like self-deprecating way. Totally. It's just such a unique culture identity that has already kind of broken into the world through like television, like Flight of the Concords or like now like Taika movies and stuff. And I would just love to see that with theater for New Zealand theater to really kind of embrace different versions of this identity and for that to like really get some some recognition to like pop off locally so that it can then travel to to Broadway to to the West End to like play these crazy houses. One of my favorite kinds of theater or theater identities in the world is Irish theater, which is like obviously adjacent to kind of British theater. You know, like Martin McDonough, who wrote like The Pillow Man and a bunch of like really local plays like what, Skull and Connemara and uh, Lieutenant of Inishmore and The Cripple of Inishman and like these kind of super Irish plays yeah. that are funny and violent. They're almost like the Tarantino of plays. Right. And they're so deeply Irish, but they play in these massive theaters across the world because there's something about a really authentic presentation of that identity that is like charming, but also like just so truthful that you just relate to it immediately, even though it's not your own. And the way that I guess people did for Hunt for the Wilder People when that kind of popped off. And so, yeah, I just think I just want to like help develop that culture in whatever way I can, whether it's teaching, whether it's acting, whether it's, you know, like building up Blackboard to the point where it's a company that can facilitate that. I think that New Zealand theatre could be that, and I want to be around if and when it is. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, thank you, Fergus, for coming on this journey, I guess. No worries, <laughs> James. Thank you for having me, man. This was this was fun. I <laughs> Sorry if I uh, just got too excited and, and talked a lot. I'm sure people will love it. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to everyone else for listening and we'll talk to you next week with another amazing guest. Bye. Bye. Hi everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing all about Fergus. If you'd like more Fergus in your life, you can follow him on Instagram at xoxogossipgus. If you want to get tickets to Fergus's show Bublé You Bastard, the link is in the description. You don't want to miss it. If you'd like to support me and my big podcasting dreams, head on over to patreon.com forward slash and other Kiwi dreams and pick a tier that takes your fancy. I'll see you there. You can also find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our website. All of those links are in the description. As I said in the intro, there'll be no episode next week as I am moving house. We will be back in two weeks when I talk to a green witch on Broadway and other Kiwi dreams.